Father, thank you for this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for the the relief and the weather, Lord. I know it's a, a little thing to you, but to us, Lord, when it, it it just becomes so unbearable at times, Lord, it almost feels like the the atmosphere of the world. And so we thank you for these little graces, Lord. Thank you for uh, the, the weekend that we've had thus far, and now, Lord, as we begin our week in looking at the Word of God and focusing on our Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would minimize all the distractions in our minds, in our hearts. Help us to come with humility to worship you in spirit and in truth. Even as we begin this morning, just uh, looking at an overview of several of the wonderful books in the Bible you've given us, Lord, I pray that it's encouraging to our hearts and inspiring to our sanctification, Lord, that we would be more and more like Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So, Module 5, Session 12, in rare, uh, in rare form, I think we can get through the whole thing uh, this morning. So, we're going to do First and Second Timothy and Titus together. And for any of you who are doing the Bible book reviews, um, you, can, you can kind of do one BBR to cover everything. And just kind of note the specific information about each one, but really they're 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 very much a unit, and so it makes sense to do a BBR for all of them together. So let's introduce this first of all. You all know the author is Paul, and the dates pretty clear on this. First Timothy, the year sixty three, Titus sixty six, and Second Timothy sixty seven, right near the end of of Paul's life. And the recipients are pretty easy in these uh, books. Timothy was, uh, some say the pastor at the Church of Ephesus. I think it's a little more accurate to say he was the apostolic representative. Um, now, he ended up staying there for several decades, according to very strong tradition. But he he wasn't really sent just to be the local church pastor. He was sent to represent Paul and to do some pretty major um, work there. Titus was the apostolic representative to Crete, to the island of Crete. They were fulfilling very specific missions on Paul's behalf. And eventually Paul called both of them to leave where they, when they would rejoin him. Uh, Timothy would go back and forth a number of times to Ephesus. Why are they called the pastoral epistles? Well, they are called pastoral epistles um, because of the recipients. And it's a, it's a dual kind of uh, role here. They are written to Timothy and Titus. And so we get a lot of insight into what the Apostle Paul directed uh, in terms of leadership of the church. And we get our most material in all of the Bible on leadership in the church from First and Second Timothy and Titus. But the dual role that's happening here is that both of the letters ends with the phrase, Grace be with you. It's a plural. So the letters were meant for the whole church. And which is really instructive because both Timothy and Titus can literally tell the church, this is what the apostle told us to do and told me to do. So it really created uh, quite a, an atmosphere of authority for Timothy and Titus. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, Paul told Titus in the, at the end of Titus chapter 2 to instruct the people on the things he had just written in Titus 2. And he said, let no one disregard you to teach with all authority. 
And that's something that's lost in the church very often today, that uh, pastors, instead of teaching with authority, try to teach with um, entertainment or trying to uh, pander and, and make you feel good and almost apologize for, you know, I'm sorry I have to say this. Why would I ever say I'm sorry for telling you the word of God? Um, that's silly. So, so from Timothy and Titus, we get a real strong sense of the authority of the, of the shepherd. And so these books are written in close proximity to each other, about a four-year span. And so we, we really get the heart of Paul right at the end of his ministry. Historical and theological themes that are true of all of them. At the top of the list, false teachers. False teachers. And I think I have a list there. Yeah, I have some of the, the scriptures where that's uh, most highlighted. But all three books have elements of confronting false teachers. Timothy's purpose in staying at Ephesus, Paul told him in 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You have Titus's purpose in going to Crete. Paul told him, appoint elders in every town, teach them to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So, major purpose of the pastorals is for the Apostle Paul to let these guys know you have to clean house. Uh, this is kind of contrary to popular uh, advice given to pastors to go to pastor a church and don't change anything. Um, what Timothy and Titus were told was go to a church and change everything and turn it upside down and get rid of false teachers. Um, so how do you do that? Well, you do it by teaching and by contradicting that which is false. Um, I, I've told this story before, but I think it was worth, it's worth repeating that um, I was invited to do the first two sessions at a worship conference. And I didn't know anything about the people putting this on. And I said, sure, that's fine. And I was introduced by saying that uh, the, the young lady saying, Pastor Steve is going to come tell us why we can worship God any way we want. And I was like, well, thank you for that setup. And I just came and said, well, there's just a slight error here. I'm here to tell you that you cannot worship God any way you want. You must worship the way he prescribes. So you have to contradict bad doctrine. That's the only way to get rid of it. You contradict it, and then you let the people decide. They either side with falsehood or they side with truth and they show themselves to be who they are. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians that there are divisions among you. And, and we might expect him to say, and this is terrible, you have to be unified. He doesn't say that. He says there are divisions among you and it's a good thing because it will show who's true and who's not. So division in the church is precisely what Timothy and Titus were sent to cause. False teachers have to be gotten rid of, not necessarily by a power play, although that's part of it, but simply by contradicting them and teaching what is true from Scripture and let people make their own decision. So Timothy was to, to personally confront false teaching, and Titus was to appoint people who would confront false teaching. So Timothy is in one church, which is uh, multiple meeting places around the city of Ephesus, in Ephesus and around Ephesus. Titus is going to the whole island of Crete, to multiple towns, multiple cities, and so he has to appoint those who are going to do what Timothy was doing in Ephesus. 
Now, you, you might say, well, why not just come in and start teaching the whole church? Well, they had a lot of work to do because the elders in these churches in Ephesus, some of them were the false teachers. They, they weren't just fly-by-night guys who snuck in. These were leaders in the church, and so you'd have an elder teaching a particular group. And so Timothy had to go from group to group to group, reading this letter and beginning to speak to these men and draw a line in the sand for them. Now, just a little note here about Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus longer than any other city that he ministered in. He had been there for three years. And he personally taught the elders who heard Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20. This is in the spring of 57 or so. Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so now we're six years later and Paul is telling Timothy in Ephesus to confront the men that Paul personally knows. And that would be a very powerful confrontation. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy that being an elder is a good work. What is he telling them this for? He's telling this in light of bad elders who have hurt the church. If you're on social media at all, a major theme on social media among professing Christians is that the church has hurt me too badly and so I can't go back. And I, I see that all the time. And, and what I hear is, is uh, you know, these elders in the church I was in, they were terrible men. This pastor was a horrible guy. I can't trust any of them anymore. That's why Paul tells Timothy, tell the men of the church in 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is a good work he desires to do. In other words, don't, don't judge Christ by bad Christian leaders. That you, uh, it's still a good thing. And so we have the false teachers. And we would expect a, another theme in all three that would uh, help with that problem. And that is the true teaching. The true teaching. There are many verses about teaching the truth. You refute false teaching because you've laid a firm foundation of true teaching. And I've seen this happen in, in the church numbers of times. In our church, uh, the church I pastored in Texas, this is, this is how the Lord works. You keep teaching the truth year after year after year. And those who don't want to hear it anymore, they do one of two things. They either expose themselves as false and they make trouble or they just fade away and they leave. And that's okay. That's okay with me. Because ultimately, what does Christ want? Do you, you know what the very first teaching Christ ever gave about the church? It was about purifying the church. That those who want to live a sinful lifestyle, which, by the way, believing false teaching is a sinful lifestyle, just like adultery, just like theft. Do you, do you, did you catch that? Believing false teaching is a sinful lifestyle. So, so false teaching is something that you either, you either correct or you, you show yourself to be who you are. Now, one of the things we love about Grace, I love about our new members, and I get to talk to every single uh, Grace Connect class, and I, I try to go for the last few minutes and answer questions. And when people have been here two, three, or four months, um, there's a couple of interesting responses I've seen so many times. Uh, the first response is a little surprising, and that is anger. Not at us, but anger that why have I never heard the preached word? Why have I never heard the Bible uh, exposited this way in 50, 60, or 70 years of my life? What, what happened to these, these idiots that occupied pulpits? 
Why did they not teach me? And then the other response is the old uh, drinking through the fire hose uh, thing. Because because I haven't heard this, my brain and my heart is theologically four decades behind, and I've got to catch up. And so it can feel a little overwhelming. So my encouragement is always just keep your mouth wide open and keep drinking <laughs> and keep going, and the dots will keep will will eventually connect. And so how do you how do you deal with False teaching, you just teach the truth over and over again. Um, That's why we don't demand that members believe everything in our doctrinal statement. If you already believe that, there would be no place to grow, right? What we, uh, yes, uh, thank you, Ed. Um, There would be no place to grow. And what we're looking for is that sounds like popcorn or rain? Ice, okay. Uh, That's a little distracting. I I am an iceaholic, so. So if, you're, if you believed everything already and understood all of it, then there's no place to grow. And that's, that's totally fine. Where we draw a line in the sand is any places of disagreement. You're not going to say anything about it when you're in a position of teaching or leadership. Because we will preserve unity that way. And so um, you're not going to get, a, you're not gonna get a, a confrontational email from an elder saying, you need to believe you know, this, this 15th paragraph in our, in our um, doctrinal statement. Uh, but if you're teaching a small group and you're contradicting that doctrinal statement, then you will. And that's just to preserve unity. And I think that that's a very reasonable standard um, to have. So under the big heading of the true teaching, we have the theme of the faith. And I have some verses there. First Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience. And we would call this the faith. And really, uh, it should be holding the faith. There is a there. There is a definite article there, if I believe, if I remember right, um, meaning we hang on to sound doctrine. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That means we believe it. We hang on to it. We go to our graves believing these things. Then you have still under the true teaching. The idea of sound teaching, and I have some verse references there. Sound just means, it it means logical. It means that which is based in Scripture and Scripture alone. Um, If you come away from a, a sermon or a theological lecture thinking that was so lofty that I don't have any idea what he said, that's not sound teaching. Sound teaching is meant to clarify, not muddy the waters, right? Sound teaching ought to thrill your souls because it, it helps you understand. Not, it doesn't put you in the position of saying, uh, that, oh, wow, that was so great. I have no idea what I, what I just heard. A couple years ago, I went, to a, I went to a conference that was here in town um, just to be supportive. And I went, I went all day long. And I, I'd like to think I have a little bit of experience in theology. And I got to the end of that day, and I didn't have a clue what this guy was talking about. And he didn't use a whole lot of the Bible. It was mostly philosophical theology. That's not sound teaching. Sound teaching is, here's what the Word of God says, and here's what it means, and here's how you apply it to your life. That's sound teaching. Then you have, of course, the, the element of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I, I won't go into the, the issue of the all people because uh, it doesn't mean all people who have ever been born. It means all people who uh, God has called to uh, election. And that's another issue for another day. But how do you get saved? You come to the knowledge of the truth. We cannot shy away from the truth. We just say it out loud. 
And we're not called to, uh, like for example, me as a pastor, I'm not called to worry about results. I'm not called to worry about who believes the truth and who doesn't believe the truth. What I'm called to do is say the truth. And then the Lord does his work. Or as 2 Timothy 4 uh, says at times, Satan does his work. Um, that he blinds the minds of the unbeliever. Then you have the theme of a trustworthy statement. Paul never uses that phrase anywhere else except in the pastoral epistles. And, and it's, it, it's a, a way of asserting authority. The saying is trustworthy, Titus 3.8. And I want you to insist on these things. And I gave you some other references there. Uh, 1 Timothy uh, 1.15, 3.1, and then 2 Timothy 2.11. Still under the heading of true teaching. You have the theme of these things. Second Timothy 2.14 Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Uh, as a preacher, one of my favorite words in the New Testament is remind. Because that means I get to repeat myself. I get to preach the same passage again if I feel it's necessary. And I get to, to teach the same thing over and over again. And there are certain things we want to teach over and over again. Uh, how about the gospel? How about the cross? How about Christology? How about anything theological? Things we want to teach over and over again. And I gave you some references there that, that reference that phrase, these things. Those are the two big ones. But to bring all that about, to make that happen, we have some other themes. Church leadership, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So clearly, since part of Timothy's uh, role was to bring godly leadership online, and part of Titus's role was to assign elders, uh, godly elders, to these local churches, they needed to find elders able to teach and lead, and then deacons who could assist them. And so they needed to find good men, they needed to train good men. And how does this work? One of the, the best verses on discipleship in all the New Testament, kind of almost the premier verse, 2 Timothy 2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is a four-generation track of discipleship. Paul to Timothy to other men to other men. And you notice that teaching is entrusted to faithful men. What does that mean? It means that knowledge is not a prerequisite to be a teacher. Character is also a prerequisite, that you must have both. Um, A a teacher without character becomes very, very popular. Um, A a Mark Driscoll sort of a guy who can get tens of thousands of people to follow him, but you can't imitate his life. So what good is it? What good is that? It, give me one man whose life is worth imitating and is a mediocre teacher. I'll take that all day long over a great teacher whose life is hypocritical. All day. And so we see that an elder is defined really more by who he is than what he does. There are a lot of people who can do what elders do. Um, a lot of men with, with great leadership skills. And, and uh, for example, in the American church, the, the MO is kind of very often to turn leaders into elders. And it really should be the other way around. You turn elders into leaders. Um, in other words, they, well, we should make this guy an elder. You know how much he gives? And he has five successful businesses going and this and that. That's great. He's on his fourth marriage. You can't make him an elder. 
or his, his kids are a wreck and it's a mess. Yeah, everyone has one or two kids that's a wreck or a mess. But when all of them are, then there's a common factor there. Then you have the theme of church order. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Does that feel weird to you to have the word behave assigned to you? But that's what God says, that you're to behave yourselves. And so anyone who would make a disconnect between the gospel and salvation and your behavior and sanctification, you can't have that disconnect. The two are, are intertwined. We are to behave ourselves. We are to demonstrate our salvation by our good works. Speaking of which, you have the theme of Christian behavior. You have the theme of Christian behavior. And, and under this, you have uh, faith. Not the faith as in the content of what we believe, but just having faith in the Lord. And I gave you some references there. You have the theme of faithfulness, of doing what you say you're going to do, of demonstrating that your faith in the Lord is real because you, you, you're, you're there, you're available. You, you are um, those that, that are, are adequately functioning in the church. You have the theme of godliness. Well, I tell you what, I think that's what kind of divides the men from the boys spiritually, so to speak. It's not that, it's not that, uh, that there are levels of spirituality, but there are Christians who don't particularly work at pursuing godliness, and there are Christians who do work at it. And that's really the difference between immaturity and maturity. And then along those lines, you also have character qualities. First uh, Timothy 3, the qualifications of an elder, those are qualifications, those are character qualities that all men should aspire to. Now, there's one particular skill involved, and that is the able to teach skill, and that might not be with every man, but every other character quality can be something that's pursued by men. Same goes for the women in First Timothy 3. Qualifications in Titus uh, 1 as well. And then all of this, of course, comes under the, the biggest heading, the salvation of God. I think it is terrific that First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, when you're talking about false teaching, true teaching, church, church order, and Christian behavior, it's all interwoven with the gospel. And it's all, it all goes together. You have the Savior. And incidentally, the word Savior is used of the Father and of the Son almost equally in the, in the pastorals. And so God the Father is our Savior. God the Son is our Savior. And then you have the words save and salvation that are prominent here about, uh, about a half dozen times, maybe a little bit more. So as you read through First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, you have enough information to run a church from those three books. You really do. And when I first became a pastor, and, and I won't bore you with the story, but I, I sort of got tricked into the ministry. That was the way the Lord chose to work in my life. And I didn't know how to be a pastor. Um, and so I went through First and Second Timothy and Titus with a fine-tooth comb, and I read it probably a hundred times, and I took notes, and I created a job description for a pastor. And I still refer to it to this day. I did that like 27 years ago. And so... Uh, it is adequate for the church. It is a wonderful uh, resource for the church. We spent a couple of years going through First Timothy and into that just fairly recently. And it was a very rich time in our church's life. 
What are the purposes? We'll divide them out into the three books. First Timothy, Paul exhorted and instructed Timothy and the Ephesian church to stop the influence of false teachers and restore order in the church. Now, did you catch that? That if you leave false teachers, it is a disorderly church. It is a church is only orderly when you are not coming under the influence of false teachers. I have a pastor friend who is a little bit younger in the ministry, and he is pastoring a church um, way too big for his britches. And he doesn't know what to do with the situation, so his M.O. has been, his his kind of strategy has been that all of the Sunday school classes and all the the Bible studies that are happening, you kind of just have to let people do the best they can. And there's no sense of solidarity of doctrine. There's no sense of unity of theology. And so you, you go to join this group if you're a little bit more Arminian. You go join this group if you're a little more Calvinist. You go join this group if you're a little more charismatic. And so he's adopted kind of the the, uh, the the buffet approach, I guess. Come to our church and you can have anything you believe affirmed. That's not what the church is to do. And there's only, and I hate to say this, there is only one reason I believe pastors let that go on, and that is job, uh, job security, that they want to protect their paycheck. So I always tell pastors, get a few months of money in the bank if you can so you can just preach the word and let the chips fall. And if if 20% of the church stays and the 80% who don't want to hear the truth leave, you have just purified the church and watch God work at that point. And so that's a tough thing to do. But Timothy was to stop the false teachers. No wonder he was having stomach problems. Uh, Paul sends him there. What am I supposed to do here, Paul? Uh, go confront all the bad guys. Really? Okay. So that's what he was to do. 2 Timothy, Paul appealed to Timothy to carry on the ministry of the gospel after Paul's death. That Timothy was to be faithful. And, and Timothy and Paul were so close. I mean, Paul said, you're, you're a son to me. And, to, and Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. They had ministered together here and there for decades. And I, can you imagine losing Paul? And so Timothy is being prepared for that by Paul. And then Titus, Paul exhorted and instructed Titus and the churches of Crete to stop false teachers in the churches. We don't know as much about Titus as we do about Timothy, but what we do know is he he was a guy that Paul apparently trusted to go from church to church and pull the plug on bad guys and install good guys. And so apparently he had a pretty thick skin and was able to do this and just went and did the job. Well, now we get to the fun part. That is the interpreter, uh, the interpretive issues in First, uh, Second Timothy, and Titus, because there's a few doozies. The first one, instruction to women in First Timothy two, First Timothy two eleven and twelve. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Sometime, any of you on social media, just post those two verses on your, on your account. Just watch what happens. It's just, it's so entertaining. I like to watch other people do it. I try to stay pretty positive if I can. But just post the Bible. No comment and watch what happens. The haters come out of the woodwork. Because this contradicts what we think we ought to be in our culture today, right? And so when it comes to a battle between the Bible and the culture, um, the Bible must win. 
And you have to make a decision. So what does this mean, though? Because even to our ears, and I know, I know we've been so soaked in our culture, even me reading that out loud. Some of you are going, I know it's true. And I know it's true. And you, it just feels weird. So what was it? What was going on there? One prevailing view is that, well, that was instruction to the Ephesian church only. Because apparently the, the women in the Ephesian church were just wild women and they couldn't control themselves. So Paul told Timothy, look, these women, uh, who knows where they came from? Uh, maybe they grew up in Bakersfield. Who knows? And they just have to be clamped down. This is for Ephesus only. Well, the second view is that it's universal instructions for the church universal. And we would go with that one. And Paul nails that argument down because he gives the reason for his instruction. Here's the reason. Second, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So without going into why that's the reason, did you notice what reason Paul gave? The created order going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So it can't be for just Ephesus. It is across the board. Um, This evening, I'm going to be preaching in Nehemiah 3 and 4. And the theme I've chosen is to talk about how to deal with the fact that every single Christian is called to submit to somebody. Every Christian does. And how do you deal with that? Nehemiah 3 and 4 is going to help you with that. But the fact is, is that Paul answers the question, is it instructions for Ephesus only? It can't be. It can't be at all. By the way, he uh, gives a similar instruction in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 14. And he, he says, as in all the churches. So it can't be just for Ephesus. How about this one? You thought that was tough. 1 Timothy 2.15 says that a woman will be saved through childbearing. And you might think, well, that, that sounds odd. I have counseled with women who read this, who women who have been unable to have children, who are terrified of God because they have been taught that their, their role in life is to have children. If they don't have children, then God doesn't want them in the kingdom. And I've had to help them walk through this. And so it is actually a big issue. So what does this mean? Well, some would say it means that they're kept safe while bearing children. Well, we know historically that's not the case. Christian women have died in childbirth for for millennia. Um, So that can't be the the case. And it doesn't fit the context at all. The context is how men and women are to behave in the household of God. Some would say that you're being delivered from the errors of uh, verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly and so forth. It doesn't say that. That's just pure speculation. Others would say it's you're saved through the childbirth of Jesus Christ. And that's what it really means, that Jesus being born is what saves you. And that's an interesting um, and actually a very ancient interpretation, but it's allegorical. There's nothing in the text. Remember, the text has to tell you what it means. And if it's not telling you, then it's not there. You can't just make things up. The text doesn't say it. And, by the way... The incarnation of Christ, the, the, the coming of Christ as a human being, is not in and of itself a saving act. It was necessary to save all who are chosen by God, but the incarnation didn't save everyone. And so you can't say that it's being saved through the birth of Jesus Christ. Others would say that she is saved by in being a godly woman and rearing godly children. 
that they, they live godly lives that influence their children. Her salvific role is being a godly woman raising godly kids. And so her role as a saved person is to be a godly woman. We're getting close. And there's a lot of merit to that view. Um, and that used to be my view. I, I would like to get a little more specific though. I think, the, I think the most accurate way to view this is that she demonstrates that she is saved. By being a godly woman and in rearing godly children. What is that? How does that demonstrate you're saved as a woman? It demonstrates that your priorities have totally shifted. That, that you're, you're now living for Christ. You're, you're living for what God's priorities are. She shows she's saved. Now, I'm, we're not just making this up. First of all, the word for saved here, sozo, in the New Testament, it always speaks of spiritual salvation. So, first of all, we are speaking of the, the act of regeneration, that the, the, this is a new person in Christ. You also see that it's the very same flavor and tone as James 2.24. You see that the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James doesn't mean that you gain justification by your works. It means, he means that you're justified in the sense that you are demonstrating that your salvation is real. Uh, you, we use the phrase all the time, I feel justified in doing such and such. There's evidence behind it. And so that's what James means. It's the same idea. You can tell that the woman is saved by the desire she has and the pursuits that she pursues. It's that simple. We also understand that some women and some men have a special gift to being unmarried. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 calls this a gift. But for the most part, a godly woman has her desires shifted to pursue her husband and her family. And that that's evidence of salvation. And how, how gracious is that of the Lord? And we have other evidences for men, which First Timothy doesn't go into. How about this issue? Oh, I said we wouldn't get to this. I forgot that we will. The Savior of all men. 1 Timothy 4.10. What does that mean? Does that mean that God will save all people? I don't think we can go there because Jesus taught on hell at a high rate. That God desires to save all people? Okay, now we're getting into some muddy waters. Let me ask you a question. I, I heard a song on... I, I tortured myself with Christian radio for recently, just, just for fun. Because I'm trying to find any song that has any theme other than, than God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Um, and they all have the same theme. But I, I heard a song and... It, the, the chorus was something like, God is love, there's nothing else to him. Everything that God is, is love. That is, that is just stark heresy. Um, so when we say God desires to save all people, does that sound like a loving God? Yes, it does. And so we, we're attracted to that view. But let me ask you a difficult question. Has God ever not received something that he desires? Never. He never has. So to say that God desires all people to be saved, but not all of them will make it, makes God less than sovereign. When God is less than sovereign, the universe implodes. So we can't go with that one. Our Arminian brothers would say God is the potential savior of all people. Okay, what does that also mean? If you're just using a little bit of logic, it means he's also the potential savior of no people, right? If the cross is only for those who potentially will be saved, then this is the greatest roll of the dice in the history of the universe. 
that Christ might have died for all people potentially, but he might have died for nobody potentially. And I would go with the nobody if you're going to go with that because uh, Romans 3 says that no one seeks after God. And so you're telling me that the God of the universe rolled the dice betting that a few people would seek God when he himself said that they don't. So we can't say that God is the potential savior of all people. We could say it means God is the savior of all sorts of people. Now that's true. But is that what the context is talking about here? That, that, by the way, that's a common um, Bible study error is to come to a right conclusion from the wrong text. Right? So you have to let the text give you your conclusion. God does save all sorts of people. But that's not indicated here. So what we would say is that God is the Savior of all believers. He's the Savior of all believers. God, there's no other God who saves. He is the only one. That is the stark truth. But we would say there are flavors of 2, 3, and 4 as well. Uh, we would say there is a flavor of God desiring to save all people. Um, w- would we say that God's wrath is glorified by those in hell? Yes. Would we say that there is an element of grief to God for those that he had to punish? I, I think it's fair to say that. But, it, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't get what he wants. And that, that brings us into gray areas that we won't uh, go into. God is the potential savior of all people? Yeah, sort of. Uh, he, you, you weren't saved 2,000 years ago, except in the mind of God. You actually had a moment in time where you were regenerate. And so, in that sense, it's true. God is the savior of all sorts of people? Yes, we've seen that. But we have to say that when he says he's the savior of all men, God is the savior of all believers. And that's, that's where we have to land there. And by the way, just because a doctrine doesn't answer all your questions doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that God has chosen not to answer all your questions. And he wants you to believe. And we have plenty to believe. But when he says all men, he chose those words specifically. Then you have the issue, and this is actually pretty big in our circles, of uh, elders' children are believers or are faithful. In Titus 1.6, it can be translated either way. And so this is, this is a, a Greek word that goes either way. And so you can't really use definitions because uh, you can kind of both, uh, both views can pull from a definition. Well, it, it often means believers. That's right. And it often means faithful. Now, what's the difference between being a believer and faithful? A believer is a regenerate kid, right? A faithful one is a, is a kid that, generally speaking, is disciplined by his parents, And that that he obeys at a reasonable level. So what are the major views? The first major view is that an elder must have saved children. An elder must have saved children. Um, That is at least the official view that MacArthur had uh, years ago. I don't know if that's his official view anymore. But uh, in his commentary, I heard him say once, that's the downside of writing a commentary is that your views are stuck forever um, in there. And and so it's just kind of there. I always fall back on 1 Timothy 4.15, let your progress be made known to all. And so um, somebody asked me, "What what do you do if you change your view on something? Well, I preach it. You know, we're all growing together. But the other view is that uh, these are faithful children in the same context of First Timothy 3 of having your house in order, your spiritual house in order, that you're, you're raising your children in the admonition of the Lord. I have to go with faithful children. And there's a, there's a reason for this that has nothing to do with family, nothing to do with being parents, nothing to do with kids. The, the reason is, is that if we go with 
that an elder must have saved children, every other qualification is something that he has control over, something that he does. And so if I say an elder must have saved children, then what I'm saying is is that you must make certain your children get saved. And so what does that do? It makes you an accidental Arminian, we would call it. So for soteriological reasons, I can't go with that. Regeneration is the work of God. I have seen, and some of you have even given testimony to this, I've seen some of the worst parents in the world end up with all saved kids that are better spiritually than their mom and dad are. I don't know how that happens. And I have seen some of the godliest men and women I've ever known raise kids and do their very, very best, raise them in the admonition of the Lord and have them go off and go astray. So we can't say that regeneration is the work of man. It is the work of God. For that reason alone... But we could give some practical thinking also here. How can you tell whether a kid is truly saved or not? If, uh, you know, David Papillon has some little bitty kids, are are we going to bring them before the elders and say, all right, now take your thumb out of your mouth and let's talk the gospel. How do you tell? Um, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Saved kids are idiots half the time, so they, they do dumb things. Why? Because they're little and they're inexperienced. So how, do you, how are you going to tell? Also, what about the child who acted saved and at the age of 35 renounces the faith? Does his dad quit the ministry and apologize for 40 years of ministry that, that he shouldn't have done? Or how about this one? If an elder's wife has a baby, does he quit? And does he start uh, sending his resume out to corporate America? So uh, we don't form theology from practical experience, but practical experience would tell us um, that it becomes in the realm of ludicrous to say that they must, all children must be saved. Um, so what do we do? Um, I get this question from younger pastors all the time. You know, my kids aren't saved, but I'm a pastor. What do I do? Same thing you do with all the other kids. You preach the gospel to them and you, you pray for them and you tell your church, pray for the salvation of the little reprobates I've got in my house. <laughs> Just like I'm praying for yours. And it gives you a sense of solidarity. I want to do one last little note here. I want to tell you what the pastorals tell us about church leadership and church structure. And this is a a really, really condensed version of this document I created for myself almost 30 years ago now. This is just what, what I learned. Leadership is charged with guarding sound doctrine by teaching what is true and rebuking what is false. Um, I've written an article. I just finished it. I, I don't know where I'm going to publish it or who I'm going to give it to. Um, but it's, on, it, it's a technical article on what is called polemical preaching. Polemical preaching is a negative sermon that argues against something. And on occasion, that is necessary to do. I've done it four times specifically at Grace Bible Church in response to um, popular Christian fads. The only time I've ever done it um, is when I see a particular Christian book being carried around by a bunch of our members. And for some reason, when the latest fad comes out, people like to bring it with their Bible to church. I'm not sure why. Um, But that's when, for example, a couple of years ago, um, I preached a sermon on the book Gentle and Lowly. Um, and, and the author of Gentle and Lowly is a, is a godly man who loves the Lord and he probably without wanting to um, necessarily wrote what we would consider actual heresy um, assigning some attributes of God as being more important than others 
And so because it was, it was the number one top-selling book, not just in Christian circles, but on Amazon, period, uh, for a period of time. And so um, when confronted about this, the author has doubled down, as they say, and has, has continued defending this. Now there's a Spotify channel on Gentle and Lowly. There, there are uh, children's books coming. There's all kinds of stuff. It's become the latest thing. And sometimes you have to, when, when I as a shepherd see the flock being drawn to something that looks so good, oh, that's the Jesus I want. You don't go after the Jesus you want. You receive the Jesus that the Bible describes. And so polemical preaching is necessary. It's not a good diet. Um, if you come to my house for dinner, we're not going to serve you a plate of vitamins. You, you get food. But once in a while, you need the vitamins. And you need the, the difference. So that, that is so important. It is not my job to be a political figure to try to make everybody happy. There is one person I'm trying to make happy, and that is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. What you do with that is your business. And if enough of you don't want to make the head of the church happy, then I'll sell insurance. Because I won't have a job. And if enough of, enough of you want to make the head of the church happy, then we'll keep going like this. But it's not the job of the elders to try to make people happy. We teach what is true, rebuke what is false. And isn't that the nicest thing you can do for sheep? Um, if you know anything about sheep, they're prone to eat poisonous plants. That's just what they... Because sheep have no brains, right? They just, they just go around, oh, this looks semi-edible, I'm going to eat this. And one of the jobs of a shepherd is to point out, no, you can't eat this, and don't eat this. And so that's what they do. And by the way, I'm a sheep too. I've just been taught how to point out where the poison is. <laughs> that's all. What else? It's motivated by love for the whole church as being more important than the agenda of individuals. Church leadership should be motivated by love for the whole church as, as more important than the agenda of individuals. As soon as a shepherd in the church makes making one person happy more important than feeding the whole flock, then they've gone off track. Um, I enjoy very, very much the friendships I have in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I haven't had to do this much, but um, I have had to tell friends, please don't make me choose between being your pastor and being your friend because I will choose pastor every time. Because I'm more afraid of God than I am afraid of losing your friendship. So that has to be the, the greater good is always the most important. You think about Alexander and Hymenaeus in First Timothy 1. By the way, these were friends of Paul. He knew these men. And he said that they're turned over to Satan. There's to be order and proper behavior as members of the church. First Timothy 2 that's, that's okay to do. We want to be organized. We want to be helpful. We want to be um, those that, that at least appear to look like we know what we're doing. Uh, one of the comments we get in our Grace Connect class, we, we hand out our organizational chart, and people say, well, that's, this is the church. You should just be, hey, whatever goes. We don't do that in any other area of life. Why would we do that in the church? We want to be organized. We want to be um, uh, those that are trying to be as structured as we can. Uh, speaking of which, there is to be an authority structure and a respect for that structure. I, I've said this so many times. That first of all, I am I am thoroughly, thoroughly spoiled at Grace Bible Church. Uh, I, I have never seen a church that treats their shepherds the way you guys do. And I appreciate that so much. That frees my mind up because it's really hard to worry about difficult church members while studying the Word of God. Those two things don't go well together. Um, 
But I've said this so many times. What the scriptures say, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, what the scriptures say about how sheep treat the shepherds is for the good of the sheep. Because there's no such thing as a happy church member who hates his pastor. That, that just doesn't exist. I'm, not, I'm a little older now. I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep if somebody says, I don't like you. I'm like, well, okay, you know, good night. That's, that's what I'm going to do. But it hurts you. And so that's why, that's why it's good for the church to have respect for that structure. Instruction is to be given with authority. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I, it's funny to me when we, we have a new, you know, a new guest or a church member and they say, wow, you, you preach pretty forcefully. I really don't. We say what the Word of God says and then explain what it means. And, it, and what that tells me is that that person isn't used to pastoral authority that simply says what God's Word says without uh, trying to minimize it or explain it away. I've never once said, I'm sorry I have to preach on giving. I always say, let's preach on giving. Because the Bible does over and over again. And any believer that goes to, to a church and never gives a dime shows that their heart is not in, in the Lord's camp. So, of course, we want to be authoritative because the Bible is authoritative. Leaders are to be tested and approved and not self-appointed. Don't raise your hand, but if you've ever gotten sucked into a church um, where there's a self-appointed apostle, um, it's funny how those guys rarely can get much of a following because, like, well, who appointed you an apostle? And you're in really good shape because you're at least 2,000 years old. So how could that be? But this is very important. I would never, I I don't care if it happened 30 years ago, I would never attend and become a member of a church where the pastor appointed himself. I don't care if it happened 30 years earlier because the foundation is cracked because he didn't take the testing and the approval of other godly men. He decided to go off on his own. So I would never do that. You can if you want to, but I will never attend a self-appointed church. Leadership is to track who's committed to serving the church and who is not. First Timothy 5 tells us this. Um, when it talks about tracking uh, the older women who are faithful to serve. And so we keep track of that as elders. We do find out where there are church members that aren't doing anything. Now I know if you're, if you're uh, older and you're limited, we get that and totally get that. But if you're 30... And you're doing nothing than just coming and receiving. We will, we will track that because we're called to do that. Leaders are to pursue godliness as an example to the church. Behind closed doors, our leadership meetings, we, we talk about godliness. We remind one another in our staff meetings right now. We're going through a Bible study. The, the seminary trained staff, we're going through a Bible study on gentle shepherding. And to make sure that our hearts are growing as well. We're to guard the deposit of sound teaching. I have a, I haven't, I've never had to do this, but I have a commitment in my own heart. If I'm ever sitting in our church and somebody is beginning to say something that is heretical, I will step up on the platform and I will say, you're done. You need to stop. Because we're to guard sound teaching. We don't just go, oh, well, that's, that's awkward. And I know people misspeak and I get that. But if somebody is coming and purposefully doing that, um, that's why to, um, to take my place in the pulpit, it's kind of a tough process to get through it. Sound doctrine translates into sound behavior. We will, we will maintain that to our dying day. Sound doctrine translates into teaching sound behavior. Uh, Titus 2, 
Teach the things which accord with sound doctrine. They go together. We also see that the church is to train men. And then Paul's really final big giant admonition to Timothy. He gives them an oath. He basically says before God, I want you to swear to me, preach the word. And so that's, that's what we are, what the pastorals tell us about church leadership and structure of the church. And, and my, my hope for church leaders is that they're saturated in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, I read through First and Second Timothy and Titus a couple times a year just to, just to keep it fresh in my own mind. And, and I want to have that fresh. Um, we have like two or three minutes. Does anybody want to ask any questions about the book or, yeah, Andy.